Welcome to the National Film Pod of Canada, the podcast with a different take on the movies. My name is George Kaplan. In this episode, I have multiple segments that contain all sorts of movie-related things. I talk about some great books about movies that you should read. I talk about a couple of film critics that I think you should know about. I also talk about the Canadian Cooperation Project, which is a short and comical moment in Canadian film history. But first, I start off with some Hollywood news. The first news uh, about Hollywood that I wanted to talk about is uh, just a short article I read uh, in a, on the web. It's taken from the Long Beach newspaper. And it says here that uh, along the uh, an area of the Los Angeles River, uh, there used to be a homeless encampment. And the police be- uh, came in and basically did a sweep, as they say, of this encampment, which is just a way of saying they got rid of them. So they pretty much uh, expropriated uh, all the uh, homeless from their location, got rid of the whole camp because of the city. And then a few weeks later, there was a film company that came along pretty much near where the original camp was and put up a fake homeless camp for a shooting of a movie, that were actually of a TV show called On Call. I have no idea what that is. And they don't really kind of say in this article that the uh, the city got rid of the real homeless in order uh, for the company to come along and put in their homeless, which is probably fake homeless. There's no direct link, but it's just very odd that uh, there was a real homeless camp and they, that got booted out. They got, all the homeless got booted out of that place. And a week or two later, film company comes along and puts up nearby a fake homeless camp for a TV show. I mean, these things are probably happen a lot more in Hollywood, but this one struck me because, I mean, the obvious thing was that, uh, you know, you could have used the, if they had left the, the original homeless, the real homeless, uh, they could have used them in the show when they came along. The production company could have, you know, given them jobs. That would have been a good thing, or at least some money for using them as extras. Maybe there's some union rules against using fake, or I should say real, homeless to play fake ones only extras i don't know what the the deal is but it's just the whole thing is weird so basically the crew of the um, tv show put in uh brought in a bunch of extras play the role of uh, homeless people and they put up an authentic looking encampment with tents and tarps of course they had one before but anyway and so the and the filming area the the article says was ringed with security to keep outsiders, including genuine housing bereft people, from ruining the scenes and disturbing the authenticity of the set. Of course, here they say housing bereft people, which is just a fancy way of saying homeless people. I don't know why they say housing bereft. That's that's weird again. But of course, the the real interest of this article of this last paragraph is the fact that they had security to keep the real homeless away from the fake homeless camp. I mean, 
Can you really make up stuff like that? I guess you can in Hollywood. The, uh, the next Hollywood news that I want to talk about, something that you might have heard of uh, before, has been in the news for a while. I think it happened last year. It was when uh, the actor Alec Baldwin accidentally, so to speak, shot someone on a set that he was uh, working on. And the movie was called uh, Rust, I think it was, yeah. And, uh, and this is drama, I guess you could say, has been going on for like a year. Uh, the big news about this now, uh, it, it, kind of as they say, broke. I hate that word, but okay, fine. The news broke a few weeks ago that the uh, the person who was shot was a cinematographer called Helena Hutchins, and she died after being shot by Baldwin. And the she was married, and uh, I guess her husband, the widower, is now the executive producer of that movie, because that movie is now resuming shooting. That was the big news. Uh, I, a big, I can't, well, it's hard enough to believe that they would continue shooting the movie, because it was obviously interrupted after the shooting. I mean, the real shooting, not the movie shooting, but shooting, shooting inside the movie, uh, on the movie set, I should say. And um, so they wanted to continue with the movie. And then, for me, the, the, the really weird stuff is the fact that the widower of the person shot dead is now the executive producer. So that's the, as I say, the headline. But let me give you a bit of a background because it's been a, going on for a while. So uh, Baldwin was uh, playing around with a gun he thought was loaded with blanks. He pointed it at the cinematographer and for some reason pulled the trigger, or he said he didn't pull the trigger, but can't shoot a gun without pulling the trigger. So the gun went off, and basically she, the uh, cinematographer, Alina Hutchins, was shot, hurt, and she died later on uh, when in hospital. And also, I think the assistant director who was sitting nearby was also wounded. His name was Joel Souza. And on this uh, movie set, uh, from my research, they said there were signs of problems before the deadly shooting. Uh, seven camera crew members walked off the job. Uh, to express their discontent with matters ranging from safety conditions to the quality of accommodation, according to one crew member. Uh, this happened before the shooting. And um, it was a big thing, of course, when it happened. And Alec Baldwin was actually charged with, I guess, involuntary manslaughter. I think that was the thing. And then typically for those things, he sued, I think, some people and some people sued him, family members of Alina Hutchins sued him, so everybody was suing everybody, and so on and so forth. Um, the district attorney uh, charged Baldwin, and later on, she actually resigned. Somebody else came along, and then miraculously, the charges were dropped. So, it's amazing how things work. The first assistant uh, director on the set, Dave Halls, was sentenced to a suspended sentence. So I'm not sure if I understand that. He's sentenced to a suspended sentence. So I don't know what that means. But he pleaded guilty to negligent use of a deadly weapon. Uh, so prosecutors said that he was responsible for the set safety. So I guess they blamed him. So the shot uh, fatally wounded Hutchins and wounded uh, the director, Joel Souza, in the shoulder. 
So saying he wanted to clear his name, Baldwin sued people involved in the handling of the loaded gun. And then he maintained that he was told the gun was safe and he didn't pull the trigger. But the FBI says that, well, the, you know, the gun could not have gone off unless the trigger was pulled. So how that happened. So there was a lot of back and forth and, you know, one way he said, she said kind of thing. And then a whole bunch of things happened. There was a fine against the movie production company. Yeah, that'll help. Yeah, for sure. But the big thing for me anyway, is that the, the husband of the person killed, the widower, somehow he dropped his suit against Baldwin. And then, oh, imagine that he was made an executive producer on the movie. Hmm. And executive producers, you know, they get paid a certain amount of money to be a producer. But I don't know if this guy actually has any experience as a producer. But in Hollywood, I guess, having experience as a producer, as we will see, uh, doesn't mean anything. So anybody can be a producer, an executive producer. Yeah. So the widower made a statement. He said, I have no interest in engaging in recriminations or attributions of blame. All of us believe that Helena's death was a terrible accident. I am grateful that the producers and the entertainment community have come together to pay tribute to Helena's final work. Mm -hmm, unquote. So, how about that? Yeah, I see. That seems to be the thing uh, that makes people drop their suit. I guess you make them an executive producer. Now, this uh, event with Baldwin kind of uh, reminded me of something that had happened 40 years ago, almost, on a movie set uh, for a movie called The Twilight Zone, which you might have seen. It was the feature film version of the old um, TV show. And three people died during a shooting a scene for that movie. And the director was John Landis, which you might have might remember. And what happened was the, there was an actor called Vic Moreau, who was a, you know, a, a pro, and, but he was a bit old, I guess. And during the scene for this Twilight Zone movie, he was supposed to be like in Vietnam, and there was like a war on. He was rescuing these two kids during a, like a, a war scene, like, you know, bombs and gunfire. And so he was like in a river, shallow river, I think, if I remember. Because uh, I remember seeing the clip from, from, you probably can see that on YouTube. I wouldn't be surprised. And um, there was a helicopter not far. And the pilot lost control of the helicopter. And the helicopter fell on the three people. So the, the, the Vic Moore was carrying these two kids with him. So and the helicopter basically dropped on them and they, they were all killed. And of course, back in the day, it was a big thing. Uh, not, that it was, not that it was the first time that somebody had died on set, but for some reason, this was a bit more egregious, as they say, because two kids were killed. And of course, they were charged, as they should have been, and they were, <laughs> with manslaughter. And uh, so the Landis and, the, and all those people said they weren't really responsible, but, uh, but they freely admitted that the production broke child labor laws. But they said that the, the crash was unavoidable. Hmm. Of course, Landis and his co-defendants were acquitted of the serious charges. And the director went on to make a movie called Coming to America, which you might have seen or not. I don't know. I never saw it. But apparently it was a hit. And in Hollywood, when you make a money-making movie, all is forgotten. And like, it's like the Twilight Zone thing never happened. So he went on with his life. And basically... What happened after that was the thing that really struck 
struck me as even weirder, or anyway, funnier, was that the vice president of Warner Brothers, the comp- the studio that made uh, produced the Twilight Zone, um, his name was John Sylvia, and he had the bright eye there after all these deaths uh, that well you should uh, you know tighten up the industry's uh, approach to safety, which just seemed like a good idea. Well, you should have done that before, but anyway, so he convened a committee that created standards for every aspect of filmmaking, from the gunfire to aircraft, smoke, and pyrotechnics, and all that stuff. The unions and the guilds in the movie business were there, and they all got together and created a, a group of standards called safety bulletins. And then the studios uh, issued this manual to their employees uh, during production. It was also known as the Injury and Illness Prevention Program. But the weird thing is, or not in a weird way, I guess, funny, is that even though they issued all these safety bulletins, people kept dying and being injured on set. There was a stuntman called Dar Robinson who died in a remote area after rupturing his spleen in a stunt during the shooting of a movie called Million Dollar Mystery. And after that, they decided, uh, well, they updated their safety bulletins and decided, well, you know, we should have ambulances on the set before the stuntmen do their thing, just in case something happens. Which is a good idea. I'm not saying it's not. But shouldn't you have thought of that before? Hmm. And, uh, you know, this updating of these safety bulletins. The process continues today. Uh, there's uh, this person called Pam Elliott, uh, production manager of a special effects company in Hollywood, says, with every accident comes more regulations. Every time someone gets hurt, we learn and rules are put in place to try to make sure it doesn't happen again. Hmm. I don't think your bulletins are working if people keep dying. But here, it said basically, you know, despite these bulletins and efforts to prevent accidents and improve safety and all that, accidents keep happening. There were more people who died. There was a, a pilot called Art Scholl who was killed when his camera plane crashed during the filming of Top Gun, the original. At the remake. I don't think too many people, many people remember that, that somebody died on Top Gun, making Top Gun. There was a stuntman called Reed Randall, who was killed in a helicopter crash on the set of a, something called Airwolf. I think that was a TV show. There was actor Brandon Lee, remember? Bruce Lee's son, who died of a gun loaded with blanks. Wow, that sounds familiar. This happened, you know, before the uh, Baldwin movie disaster. But the bottom line of all this stuff, for me anyway, is that whenever things like that happen in Hollywood, nobody goes to jail. In an earlier podcast, I made some comments about how in Canada we are reduced to looking at the background scenery of American films in order to see little glimpses of Canada. In admitting that some people do this, they never seem to have any sense about how weird this is. They sound enthusiastic about it, but I'm not. Thinking about this state of affairs uh, a bit further, I reminded myself of something that I had read in an old book from a Canadian historian, Pierre Burton. He had written a book called Hollywood's Canada, which documented the ways in which Hollywood had distorted the Canadian history and turned Canadians into stereotypes. That book deserves a whole podcast to itself, and later on I will talk about it further. But uh, there is something else in the book which I wanted to talk about now, and that is something called the Canadian 
Cooperation Project. As a side note, uh, I'll also be referencing uh, this the Canadian Cooperation Project uh, from another book called uh, Canada's Hollywood by Ted Machter. Uh, you see what he did there? He just kind of reversed the, the title of Burton's book. Yeah, another book that deserves a podcast, but uh, both books talk about the CCP, so I'm going to be using both of them. So here we go. So back in the day, the early days of filmmaking around the world, uh, in the post-war period, uh, World War II, the pervasive and overbearing influence of Hollywood's uh, filmmaking led many Western governments to take steps to protect and subsidize the development of a national feature film industry. But the Canadian government followed a different strategy. In 1948, they negotiated their own special deal with the American majors. The Canadian Cooperation Project, CCP as it came to be known, was yet another attempt at a movie branch plant industry. As we heard in my previous Canadian uh, Film History podcasts, around this time in Canada, there was no feature film industry. So the only filmmaking going on was strictly for the private sector, such as industrial films or for the Canadian government itself, and that was the work was done by the NFB. But in terms of that most people know about movies, the feature film with actors and stories and so on, feature films, obviously, none of that type of filmmaking existed in Canada. Now, there was a problem, actually, at that time for Canadian politicians, at least, uh, the balance of trade, which is to say that more and more money was flowing out of Canada into the U.S. than the other way around. And some of that money came from Hollywood movies, because then as now, when you pay your money uh, to consume all these American products, well, that money goes south. It doesn't stay in Canada. And since we consume a lot of American uh, cultural products, uh, so to speak, uh, that's a lot of money going south. The figures quoted in the book are revealing. In 1946, it was 266 million going south. In 1947, it was 668 million dollars. And that figure, of course, not just movies. It includes other things, but movies were a big part of that loot. I guess you could call it that. C.D. Howe, the Minister of Trade and Commerce at that time, said that there was at least 15 million dollars in money paid out to American film companies. Of course, Canada being Canada, there was always an exception made for the Americans. In 1936, when there was a general tax of 5% placed on all money sent out of Canada, the American film studios were singled out as an exception and paid a tax of only 2%. Back to C.D. Howe, uh, he wondered out loud as to why some of these films for which we pay many U.S. dollars could not be made in Canada. The Canadian government made some noise about it and maybe possibly imposing some greater tax on them, on the money, and maybe possibly start up a feature film industry in Canada, but all that was very vague. The Canadian officials convinced themselves that the U.S. studios would help Canada in setting up a film industry here. How they figured that would work, I don't know. I mean, why would an industry in another country help this country set up a possible source of competition for their products? I mean, has this ever happened in the world of business? 
Hearing this, the uh, Motion Picture Association of America in the U.S., which was and still is the lobbying group for Hollywood, was developing its own ideas as to how to alleviate this money shortage. Because Americans uh, didn't want their cash to, to stop flowing, they met with the Canadian officials from the government and the Bank of Canada and made up some BS list of things that they could do to help with this, uh, with this very serious problem. And the list included A. To make a short film explaining Canada's trade dollars shortage to American and Canadian audiences. That'd be really exciting. B. To increase coverage of Canadian subjects in American newsreels. C. To have short films made about Canada by U.S. film companies. D. To obtain distribution of some NFB films in America. E. To insert some Canadian sequences in U.S. feature films. F. To make a series of radio recordings by U.S. stars extolling the virtues of Canada as a vacation land. G. To distribute fewer gangster films in Canada. Not sure what that one means. H. To appoint a staff man for a liaison of the project. So with this list, they deflected Canada's original idea for feature film production in Canada to just inserting references about Canada in Hollywood films. And so the Canadian government officials bought it. And they call this the Canadian Cooperation Project. So Magder states in his book that Hollywood, uh, not surprisingly, responded to the Canadian state's economic discomfort in 1947 with a program that involved as little commitment as possible. And what is even more important, or weird, depending on how you look at it, is that no one within the private Canadian film industry had proposed a better scheme to increase production. On the subject of creating a feature film industry in Canada, Canadians in the filmmaking world of that time were not interested or willing to risk making features. It's hard to figure out their mindset, actually. Uh, you would think that they would lobby for it, but they did nothing. And what did we get? We only got two things from that list. Some uh, Canadian references inserted into dialogue of Hollywood films and a liaison man in Hollywood to make that happen. And as Pierre Burton chronicles, uh, the films and the references were inane, trivial, and short. Here's a few samples from a variety of movies made in that time period. The Western called Bend of the River, directed by Anthony Mann, with uh, here is James Stewart and Arthur Kennedy, and they're talking here. Nightbirds. I haven't heard them before. Well, uh, they're sort of a special kind. They live up in the hills. Uh, Red Wing Orioles. Yeah, yeah, Red Wing Orioles from Canada. Yeah, from Canada. From, uh... Witness for the Prosecution, directed by Billy Wilder. Marlena Dietrich is talking here. Sorry, it's the maze night off. Well, this is pretty horrible. In a gimmick sort of way. Oh, it's fine now. I used to have a roommate. Dancer. She had luck. She married a Canadian. She now lives in Toronto. A film directed by Preston Sturges called Unfaithfully Yours. The scene uh, heard here is the at the start of the movie. And here they went east for their Canadian uh, content. 
A Roostook. And where is a Roostook supposing to be, it shouldn't happen? It's in the general neighborhood of Nova Scotia. And from this general neighborhood, maybe you can tell me how tonight that Bill Harmonic, he is a concert conducting by television, I am presuming. Is it a very bad book? Make him tell me the truth, Hugo. Of course you do. Don't worry, honey. It's Don't hardly be. a fog at all, madam. It's, it's more of a miss, really. More of a... Yes, Max? Just something to make the engines run better. Don't worry, Dom. Correction, please. What is it? It was not a rooster. It was Antigonish. And where is this mud hole if I ain't too optimistic? In the general neighborhood of Nova Scotia, I believe. What a neighborhood. And a movie called People Who Will Talk, directed by Joe Mankiewicz. Here, someone is confessing to a crime in front of a group of people. That's not important. What's important is what he had to eat. My sentence was commuted to 15 years at hard labor. And was the corpse of your friend never found? I found it myself. After I served out my full 15 years at hard labor, I found it accidentally. I was walking past a restaurant in Toronto. I happened to look in the window, and there was the corpse of my friend sitting at a table eating a bowl of soup. I think it was pea soup immaterial and irrelevant. The last person uh, you heard there was Cary Grant, and uh, yeah, that's right what he said. He had the pea soup in Toronto, but uh, that's, of course, that's, you know, that's what Toronto's famous for, pea soup. I guess by this time you get the point of this uh, pointless uh, CCP. And later on, the reports about the project showed that, uh, ironically, the tourism figures uh, had an increase in American visitors to Canada. But those figures are far lower than the increase in Canadian tourists to the U.S. The American films were still doing what they did best, selling the United States to the world. And Hollywood had managed to come true with Canada still firmly entrenched as part of its domestic market. An annual report in 1952 noted that Canada's percentage of Hollywood's domestic market had gone from 4% in 1948 to 10% in 1951, with $18.5 million in revenues. Eventually, the deficit that had started this whole thing disappeared, and the Canadian politician lost interest. The CCP project continued until 1957, when it was quietly put to rest. Okay, so for my next recommendations, I'd actually like to recommend... Uh, two uh, film critics. One is a YouTuber, and the other one is strictly ha has a, a web blog. And the two are, uh, I guess, film critics, but the one is an amateur, and the other one is a professional. So uh, I'm going to start with the so-called amateur. His name is Rob Ager, and he has uh, a website called uh, Collative Learning. Not sure what that means, but I think there's an explanation there. He also has a YouTube channel, which is where all of his, uh, I guess, free uh, uh, reviews are. And uh, he's not a professional, but he has a whole bunch of YouTube uh, videos concerning a lot of movies, uh, which I find his observation uh, really interesting. Uh, he's not uh, doing a whole movie review, like from A to Z. He just takes a specific segment of the movie and analyzes it. Uh, he, his taste in movies is pretty uh, mainstream, so he doesn't go too far afield, uh, doesn't cover any kind of foreign films or anything European even. 
this is strictly um, Hollywood mainstream stuff, Alien, you know, The Birds, 2001 Space Odyssey, The Shining, of course. He does go a lot into The Shining, probably one of the world's most overanalyzed movies of all time, but uh, he does have a few interesting takes on that movie. Uh, he doesn't doesn't always, you know, sometimes he seems to go slightly over the top in seeing things that maybe are not really there, but uh, they does have uh, some interesting takes on uh, different scenes and the way the uh, the you know movie is shot in terms of horror the horror genre and uh, he he has like a specific youtube video which i think i will include as a link where he discusses the room the famous room where jack nicholson goes into where the like the murder was taking that taking place and he starts to see all these hallucinations but he describes you know things which don't really get talked about he describes like the actual set decoration, the art, art decorate, the art design, if you like, production design, and the carpet, and <laughs> things which might seem trivial and might seem to be over the top, but it's Kubrick. So usually in Kubrick, you know, you can go pretty deep, and without going off the deep end, and uh, because there's always a lot of layers of stuff. So that's the type of filmmaker in the films where you can go really deep, and a lot of people have when it comes to The Shining. Uh, but he analyzes these things when I I learn things like I've seen Shining more than I want to, and you know the, there's all interesting observations. And it, sometimes for me, it's just the fact that he points out things which in movies which I've seen before, which I well I've seen but I hadn't seen in the sense that you know little details stuff which uh, I guess went above my head or I wasn't paying attention. Uh, he does that a lot in Shining. But did you know also that he talks he talks about the, a scene in Eyes Wide Shut. And did you know that there's a scene where actually Kubrick himself appears in Eyes Wide Shut? I didn't know. Um, it's the scene where uh, Tom Cruise goes to visit the goes to the jazz club, and he he's escorted to his table. And if you look on the left, while Tom Cruise is this you know at his table sitting down, you'll see these Kubrick is sitting down with somebody else. I don't know who that is. And he's there just, I guess, enjoying the jazz music. But he's there, if you take a look at it, it's like two, three seconds. But I found that interesting because, you know, little stuff like that does interest me. Uh, and it kind of forces me sometimes to look harder. Um, there's all kinds of details that he mentions. In other movies, which I love, uh, I'll, inc I'll talk about just one other thing which I like. I will put the link to his uh, YouTube channel on my website. He has an interesting take on the movie The Birds by Hitchcock. Uh, there's a scene in that film, uh, there's a lot of interactions between uh, Tippi Hedren and uh, Rod Taylor, and of course his mother, her mother, potential mother-in-law, I guess, and the daughter of a previous marriage. There's all kinds of interesting analysis of a scene while they're stuck inside and uh, you know the birds are doing their things outside, and the, the way the, the camera work shifts the pictures in the wall again, the interaction with the with the with the set, I guess you could say, the way the people are are staged and how it reflects on their relationships to each other and the shifts between them over course. It's very interesting. And I think the whole thing is just like twenty minutes. 
But I learned a lot, and I'd seen the movie before. And it's the type of thing that I think uh, for the average film critic, they really goes, they never notice these things. So that's why I like his stuff. Uh, you know, he has a lot of interesting takes on a bunch of other things. So uh, I'm going to basically put a link to his uh, YouTube channel. His name is Rob Hager. And the YouTube channel is called Collative Learning. Now, the other uh, critic that I like to recommend is a professional. Although he's retired now, he was a f professional film critic for about, I think, uh, about 30 to 40 years, a long time. And now he's retired. But he does have a website and a blog which collect uh, all of his uh, writings on movies and his movie reviews. Uh, his name is Jonathan Rosenbaum. And he's written for different publications like The Usual Suspects, you know, Film Comment, <laughs> Sight and Sound, and all those. Uh, written a lot of books, which I've read uh, most of them. Uh, I would, uh, that's a whole different, uh, I guess, podcast recommend his books. But if you could find uh, his books in uh, on Amazon or whatever, you, I would recommend those books also. But this is about his blog and it contains his movie reviews. And he's, uh, like I said, a professional. So he has a wider range, but he covers everything. But, you know, he covers Hollywood, of course. Like the, he has reviews about. The Cronenberg film, the history of violence, and he's got European stuff, experimental stuff, documentaries. So he, he has a wider range in the, uh, than Rob Eager. But his style is very readable. He's not a scholar, but he's not like a variety uh, entertainment tonight kind of film reviewer. So he has a bit more style in his writing, a bit more erudite. Uh, you always learn a lot from reading uh, about the movies. It's not like Siskel and Ebert, remember, if you remember those people. Uh, not that kind of mainstream, although he did write for mainstream publications. But it's very informative, and it's uh, pretty much, I would say, he's the only film critic that I can stand. You know, he's not really um, working anymore. And it's not, but it's not, like I said, not consumer kind of reviewing. Like, he's not going to tell you, you know, thumbs up or thumbs down. Although there's like a, in his reviews there's stars so there's like two star three star whatever if you if you feel the need to have those things it's there so there's no like I said um, um, there's no YouTube channel for him it just has a website his website is is Jonathan Rosenbaum one word dot net and that's all there is uh, it's just a blog I don't think there's any YouTube I haven't looked at it but I don't think there's any uh, there's no podcast either. <laughs> Strictly a blog, but still worth uh, reading uh, his reviews. And uh, like I said, it has uh, covers like decades and decades. So there's a lot of stuff to read, but it's all available and free. And I think you'll enjoy it. So his name is uh, Jonathan Rosenbaum. And uh, his website is jonathanrosenbaum.net. First book that I wanted to recommend, uh, it's a bit unfair to, for me to do that because it's actually out of print. But it's worth it if you can find a copy. It's a book by the Canadian historian Pierre Burton. The book is called Hollywood's Canada, published in 1975. And uh, actually, Pierre Burton's uh, other books uh, about like the War of 1812 and the Klondike and all that, those are available in new editions. But for some reason, this book uh, is not. Uh, I'm not sure why. Uh, who knows? But it's a book about uh, Hollywood's portrayal of Canada in the early days. 
and has chapters in it like uh, The Great Woods and the Big Snows, Primitive Passions in Untamed North. You get the picture. Obviously, he's making fun of the cliches that Hollywood has perpetuated throughout the, its early history, and it reveals a lot about how Hollywood saw Canada, and probably still does, um, and because it has, it basically, it's not that much of a kind of a film history of listing, you know, the, the beginnings of, uh, of, uh, of all the people who worked in early films in Canada. It comes across more as a kind of a record of all the, of the dumb stuff that Hollywood has uh, filmed over the years and how it has uh, pretty much stereotyped Canada. And that seems, that's what you get from reading the book. But you do get tidbits here and there that are interesting about film history that you don't find in other books. But there are not that many books about Canadian film history. But, so I shouldn't, uh, should not dismiss this book. Um, but of course, when he lists all these things, I mean, personally, I mean, I mean, I wouldn't say it bothers me. I mean, I think we're all used to the stereotypes that Hollywood has about Canada. But this book kind of documents it all. And you kind of feel that Pierre Burton is kind of shocked, kind of shocked, shocked that, uh, you know, this would happen. It would be all full of cliches. And uh, when a few times that Hollywood made movies about Canada or in Canada, they had Canadian themes, they always got everything wrong. So it's obvious that Pierre Burton, as a historian, that's his job, is to tell the facts. You know, he sees these things as in movies, in Hollywood movies about Canada, and for him, all the, the, the details are lacking. There's no fact. There's, there's fantasy, which is true. Wouldn't deny that uh, you know, Hollywood uh, gave Canada a fair, a fair treatment. But it's a bit naive because, I mean, God knows, God forbid I should, I don't want to be seen to say anything nice about Hollywood, but, you know, Americans being Americans, they're more interested in the fantasies or as they call the myth of the Western frontier. So there are Westerns about their frontier. Back in the day, all the Westerns made by Hollywood, it's just one fantasy after another. There's no historical fact. It's all been gussied up, beautified, and whitewashed. Take your pick, you know. Uh, everything's been done to kind of transform it into a fantasy. So if they did that to their own history, they would be bound to do it to our history and any other countries. History, so that's why, in a way, Burton. I mean, he can complain about it, but it's a bit, you know, it's not surprising. But the book is still interesting because he points out a whole bunch of things that uh, prior to this, 1975, nobody ever talked about. So the from this point of view, um, it's still interesting. It's a bit maybe I wouldn't say it's out of date, but you know, things have changed slightly, but not that much because. Even though all the cliches might come across as ridiculous and inane and all that, that uh, Burton lists, um, like I said before, like um, there, like I said, there, it's not just all about the cliché. He does mention a few bits that are interesting. One of the bits is that he's the one who came, who revealed that there was this guy called Colonel Owen Smith, who was the liaison for Hollywood uh, in Hollywood. Uh, and he's the one who was responsible for inserting <laughs> references to Canada in Hollywood films, and who turned out not to be Canadian. So he's 
that's where that comes from. I have not read that bit in any other book of Canadian film history. So for that, for those reasons and others, uh, it's still worthwhile to read the Burton's book. Um, and again, I guess you could say that, like I said, the cliches and all that, uh, that he's upset about, not that important or relevant or affect things now. I don't know about that because he does mention an interesting thing in the last paragraph. Uh, he was on TV in around 69 to 70, 1970. And he had like an interview show for Canadian television. And it took him to various parts of the world and so on. So he got to introduce a bunch of celebrities, most of them American, of course. And he took it upon himself to ask these American celebrities, actors, whatever, uh, what they thought about Canada. What is the image that comes into their heads when they somebody says Canada? So he's asking a bunch of people. And in his book, he talks about this. He asks the actor Tony Randall, uh, you might remember him from the 50s, <laughs> under 60s, uh, and he says, Tony Randall, oh, I just see billions of pine trees. And he talks to the uh, writer, author, Gore Vidal, and he says, Vidal, uh, one thinks of the queen and cowboys. He asks another American actress, uh, Diane Cannon, my image of Canada? I don't know. Lincoln cold, cold weather. I see Canadians in a healthy outdoor way. Another actress says, uh, oh, I see mountain police, snow, wilderness, cold. And so on and so forth. So all these cliches that Hollywood had about Canada got uh, transmitted to all these people. So it is, in a way, important to control the image. I said the image of your own country, unless you want another, another country to control the way other people think about it. So it is important just to show that the, this Burton book is not that out of date or even irrelevant uh, in what it says about, you know, Hollywood's image, image making of Canada. There was a movie, I think it was a few years ago, but in the 21st century, <laughs> made by, yes, Woody Allen. It was called Hollywood Ending. You might have seen it. Not that great. But I saw it in the movie theater. It's the story of, uh, well, of course, Alan, because it's always about him. And he's the movie director in this movie. Yeah. And um, the, the joke, I guess, is that he's on the bottom of the barrel. He's been making movies that keep losing money, and nobody wants to hire him, and he needs a job in Hollywood. And, you know, he has a bad reputation, so on and so forth. And at the beginning, his wife, who's a, like some kind of executive, his ex-wife, I should say, tries to convince some studio bosses to hire him. So, okay, that's the setup. Uh, so basically, at the beginning, we see Woody Allen in a scene where he's calling, I guess, his girlfriend, but he's not in New York. He's calling from uh, Toronto. And how do we know it's Toronto? Because there's a big snowstorm going on, and he's like knee-deep in snow, and there's he's wearing, of course, a snow jacket, and he's got the balaclava, you know, hiding his face. And he's yelling in his cell phone to talk to his girlfriend how, how much he hates it up north, because he's making a commercial. I'm not too sure. He's not actually making a movie. He's, he said he's making a commercial, but he's like in the middle of a snowstorm, because, you know, it's Canada, and we have like snowstorms like every day of the year. Of course, he says he's in Toronto, so we kind of know where he is. 
but uh, you know, compared with the Arctic, there's not that many snowstorms in Toronto. Not that intensity, but the joke is that he's. It's supposed to be funny because I guess it's snowing hard, and he's there. I mean, it's not funny, but it shows Canada as, as of course, this winter wonderland of endless snow and cold and so on. And where did we get this idea? I wonder. Where did the uh, Hollywood writers and people like him get the idea that uh, uh, Toronto and Canada was always full of snow? I wonder where. Hmm. Well, I guess Burton was actually right when he wrote this book, Hollywood's Canada, that these images uh, of Canada, they last because Americans and unfortunately other people, non-Americans, even Canadians, get their impressions of the world from Hollywood movie, which is a sad thing to think about. And since we don't control our own images of Canada here in Canada, uh, you know, somebody else does it. And it's always a cliche. And you could have made the argument uh, for Burton's book that the old stuff, I mean, he wrote that in 75, and he's talking about old movies from the style movies up to the present, his present anyway, and it's old stuff, and it's not true, and it's moved on. Well, you know, I know it's Woody Allen, and <laughs> it's just supposed to be, I guess, well, it's not supposed to be accurate, but this movie Hollywood ending that he made proves the point that these images, these cliches, they just last forever. I mean, he lives in New York, right? So uh, I think it snows in New York, too. I think it actually gets cold in December also. So we're not, you know, Toronto's not that far from New York. We're, we're not in the Arctic here in Toronto. But for some reason, he thinks that uh, it's like, it's where all the igloos are, I guess. Now, I remember seeing this movie in the theater. Uh, it wasn't a big, it wasn't a big theater, but and there weren't that many people. And, you know, during that scene, obviously this was in Toronto, but during that scene, uh, nobody laughed. Nobody thought that was funny. And it doesn't show much that, okay, we've, we know all the cliches, but, you know, maybe 50 years ago, that might have been funny, maybe. But this was the 21st century. I think this movie was made in 2005, I think. Not that long ago. And it's just, it, it comes across as very weird. Uh, maybe it had been somebody made by somebody, you know, in South America. Maybe, maybe it would have been understandable. Or maybe somebody who lives in California where the sun shines all the time and it doesn't take much, you know, for them to think that, you know, anything that falls below or 20 Celsius is like Arctic cold and never been north. So maybe they wouldn't think like that. But he's from New York. So uh, that doesn't make sense. And on any level, and it says something about him, but you know, a lot of things have been said about him. Uh, I won't repeat, you might be familiar with, uh, but just as a way of getting, I guess you could say, revenge. I guess you could say, not so much revenge, but just to show, to reveal something. That's a nicer way of putting it to reveal something about Woody Allen that was like, in a way, for not so much a foregone conclusion would be the expression, something that would kind of hinted at the future, uh, what was going to happen to him what he was going to do. He made a movie back in 71, which you can still see on all those free streaming channels, called Bananas. Uh, that was when he was actually making comedies and when his comedies was actually, were actually kind of funny. The early, early days. We're talking 1971. And he made his movie called Bananas. And I'll just uh, finish this whole thing here uh, by letting you hear 
a piece of dialogue in the movie at the beginning where Woody Allen is in the bookstore, not a book, yeah, bookstore, magazine store where people used to buy magazines back in the old days. And uh, the whole point of the movie is that he's single and he's lonely and he's horny, of course. And he's trying to buy some girly magazines, as they say. And uh, I'll, I'll start off this and with, this is the setup, as they say. So he's at the counter. He wants to buy, puts the magazines on the counter and uh, he's talking to the uh, sales clerk. And you'll see how this, uh, <laughs> what he says at the end. Take them all. Hey, Ralph, how much is a copy of Orgasm? Yeah, just put them in a bag, will you? Why? Orgasm. This man wants to buy a copy. How much is it? Doing a sociological study on perversion and up to advanced child molesting. <laughs> yeah, so he actually said it. He actually said it uh, in a movie, 1971. So if that doesn't reveal things, I don't know what does. But that's just my way, I guess, of getting revenge for that uh, stupid uh, storm reference. But le letting letting go here of Woody Allen, I would still recommend very much the Pure Burton book. You can find it in used bookstore. Uh, it, it says a lot about Canada and Hollywood and the way we are thought of by Americans, I guess, and how we are perceived by other people. And sometimes, unfortunately, even by Canadians themselves who take their cue from Hollywood movies. So the book is called uh, Hollywood's Canada, and it was written by Pierre Burton. Uh, one of the books that I want to recommend is called You'll Never Eat Lunch in This Town Again by Julia Phillips. And uh, she's probably more famous uh, for having produced the, the movie This Thing. Remember that movie with Paul Newman, Robert Redford? Uh, this thing won an Academy Award for Best Picture and made uh, Phillips the first woman to win an Oscar as a producer. So she has some history there. And she produced that movie with her husband, Michael Phillips, and they were a team. And they also produced uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Remember that? And Taxi Driver. Yeah. Uh, and their book she wrote, it's, it's big. It's a big book. It's 600 pages. It's the type of book that I think uh, it's more of an autobiography, and it's the type of book that people who are out of the Hollywood mainstream or become expelled, whatever, however it works, um, they start to write to, I guess, get back at uh, wherever, put them in, uh, in, this, in Siberia, I guess, would be anywhere not Hollywood. And uh, so some of it is a bit gossipy, and there's a lot of uh, passages about people that she worked with, and, uh, you know, people who were not nice to her. You know, she doesn't come across as being too nice herself. And, um, but she, that's how a book that you do, people like that like to, to, uh, to write. Uh, because you don't write books, you know, trashing people in Hollywood when you're inside and things are going well. You only do that when you're on the outside. So this is that type of book. But I like it because it's basically, it's unintentionally revealing. Uh, for some reason, she doesn't have all my, that much self-awareness, so that there's a lot of passages in the book which are revealing, and it reveals, obviously, the type of person that she would work with if ever you want to go to Hollywood and make movies there. I don't know why, but some people do. Uh, you probably meet somebody just like that. It doesn't matter if they're men or women. It would be just that type of personality, so in a way, it's kind of like a, you read this, and you kind of get, you know, a sample 
of what you would find. And maybe you like it, maybe you don't, or you think you could put up with it. But it's a good indication, I think, of the type of personality and the type of person that goes there. And like I said, she reveals a lot of stuff about herself and other people. She worked with Spielberg, but I didn't find any kind of uh, you know major revelations about Spielberg. She worked with uh, when she worked on Gold, um, Close Encounters. Uh, you know, the, obviously directed by Steven Spielberg. But there's also uh, Francois Truffaut's. Um, for some reason, I couldn't understand, was in that movie. And uh, so she ended up uh, meeting him and not too many pleasant things to say about him, but considering her own personality, I'm not really sure she should be pointing fingers. But if you like stuff like that, you know, like any gossipy kind of book about Hollywood uh, insiders, written by Hollywood insiders, you kind of get that stuff. So if you like that, you'll like this. But what I liked about it is, like I said, it's the unintentional tales or revelations. And the big one for me is that uh, around just uh, page 106, at the beginning of her career, she says, quote, I have no concept of what producing a movie is, unquote. Now, just think about it. She's a producer, and she's admitting in the book that she, that this was at the start of her career, she says, but she doesn't know what producing a movie is. So why are you a producer? Or why do you want to go in there and do that if you don't know anything about it? I mean, you have the basic knowledge, I guess. It just seems rather odd because I don't think Hollywood is all that keen on, not keen on first-time directors, but really are you going to hire first-time producers or work with them? People who, by their own admission, know nothing? Well, that says something about Hollywood. Although this was in the 70s, of course, so we can maybe assume nothing has changed. I think that's a big assumption, which we shouldn't take. Um, that struck me, and it's not just because she says it. You would say, well, you know, she's being honest, honest and uh, telling you the truth, but she doesn't comment on it. She just she says it and then moves on. Like, she doesn't stop it and make, you know, underline the fact that this is kind of weird for a producer to admit, but she doesn't say that. She just she admits that she doesn't have the, the knowledge, but she doesn't seem to think that that is weird. And it is to me, anyway. And this was, like I said, a time of her early career. She was working on a movie called Steel Yard Blues with uh, Donald Sutherland and Donald Sutherland and Jane Fonda. And I think that movie was actually never released because it wasn't that great. So maybe that, <laughs> because she didn't know, didn't know how to produce, maybe that's why it wasn't that good. But of course, she wouldn't take the responsibility. But uh, again, she's talking about herself and her husband, producer, looking at the dailies of that movie. And she says, quote, We haven't really known enough about the process to evaluate the dailies, unquote. The dailies being the footage shot during that day when the movie is in production. Again, she says, we haven't really known enough about the process. The process of producing a movie? But you're a producer. You're working in Hollywood. This isn't the Little League. It's the big time. And you're a producer, but you're saying, I don't know anything about it to... When I'm looking at the footage, I can't tell if it's good or bad. Well, that would explain why the movie was not released. So there's passages like that which just jump out at me. Uh, it's just unbelievably revealing. Now, of course, you could say, well, that's just her or her husband and her. I don't know. I mean, I'd have to read other, you know, biographies of other producers. and not that many who write the biographies of themselves. Uh, it's the ones that are working. So I haven't really seen that much. I usually I look for those things, but somebody knows of a, of another producer type uh, biography. Let me know. But uh, 
this one is revealing. And my cynical approach is that basically nothing has changed. And like I said, it reveals a lot about the people working in Hollywood. That's why it's interesting. If you want to go through the whole 600 pages, <laughs> it's an easy read. You know, it's like a bestseller. It was a bestseller on the, in, uh, for New York Times. So, you know, it's easy. You know, it's not James Joyce. You're, gonna, you're not going to find it too difficult. Again, another thing that uh, reveals about her personality, uh, which is the reason I find this interesting. She went to the Cannes Film Festival. And of course, uh, being a big uh, Hollywood producer, whoever makes the arrangements, uh, gave her a, a room in a hotel. So she goes to the hotel room and she looks around and she says, oh, that's not good enough. Like she was complaining that this is like b below her standard because she's, I guess, a big time Hollywood producer. I mean, she doesn't say that, but that's what is implied. And the fact that she mentions this in a book, like this is like a ba major big deal. She went to the Cannes Festival, film festival, and the hotel room they gave her wasn't good enough. And that's important enough to include in your autobiography. Really? Come on. But it says about, you know, people working in that type of place, and especially when they have hits. You know, when movies start to win awards, then they start to think that they're geniuses and that they deserve everything. Again, it's revealing of the type of personality in Hollywood. And there's a bunch of other stuff also. Uh, I just mentioned the ones that I found interesting. But uh, I would recommend it. I think it's still in print. Uh, you might find it uh, on Amazon. I think I'll try to put the link on my website. So the book is called You'll Never Eat Lunch in This Town Again by Julia Phillips. The last book that I wanted to recommend is called Lessons with Eisenstein by Vladimir Nizny. It's N-I-Z-N-Y. And this is a whole different uh, level of, um, of book, as far as I'm concerned. It's not uh, a teaching manual. It's not theory. It is a book that contains the course transcription of uh, Sergei Eisenstein, who back in the 30s was a teacher at the Moscow S State uh, Film School. And uh, he was a teacher obviously, teaching filmmaking, obviously. And so imagine having him as your teacher. And this guy, Nizhny, did a very valuable and important thing. While he was in the class with Eisenstein's, he took notes of uh, uh, the course that uh, Eisenstein was teaching. And he wrote uh, a bunch of uh, transcriptions for various courses that he took with him. And put them in, uh, put them in a book called "The Lessons with Eisenstein." Uh, Eisenstein actually wrote himself a book. Uh, it was more theoretical. It was really in the early, early days of movies. Uh, still interesting. Called two books actually: the film form and the film sense, which maybe you might be interested in. They're very theoretical. This is like film theory, so it's not for everyone. This book, "Lessons with Eisenstein," is purely practical. Uh, so it's. Uh, I'm not going to talk about all the chapters. It's not that big, it's just 300 pages. Uh, the one chapter that always amazes me is a chapter where Eisenstein, uh, in a classroom setting, uh, basically takes a chapter from a Dostoevsky novel, I think it's The Crime and Punishment, and there's a scene in there where the main character kills a landlord. Now, he decided to take this scene because it's purely action-based, action in the sense 
not car chases, but that there's just, it's a murder. So there's not a whole lot of dialogue. So it's purely a visual, going to be a purely visual experience. So he takes that chapter as the source material. And he basically, with the class, goes through from A to Z. How do you put this scene in a movie? How do you visualize it? How do you make it cinematic and all that sort of stuff? So along with the students, they go back and forth and argue, how should it be done, this scene? Where do we start? You know, is it uh, just one long shot? Is it multiple shots? You know, is there any kind of sound effects? Is there music? No music? Uh, should, how should be the, the, the angles? Um, so they literally go through every possible um, effect or method vis of visualizing this scene. And it's fascinating, really fascinating. It actually, in a way, is a bit of a biography of Eisenstein. Not his personal life, but his method, uh, in the sense that he does not really um, go through a kind of, how can I say this? It's not a, a kind of approach that is uh, like a template. It's not an approach where, like every scene, every material story, whatever, gets the same treatment. Like the way he does it is to look at the material, the ideas, and try to find the appropriate um, cinematic approach to visualizing it, putting it into a film. So there's no like technique in a sense that there's no rules of you should always do this and you should always do that, and you assume things about the audience and you assume this so that in a way, no matter what, how different the material you might film, if you have that type of cookie cutter template approach, well, every movie looks the same, which proves the point that because if you watch most stuff being made today as then and to, or today it's it's the way at least in terms of staging it or directing it or whatever you want to call it putting it to, in in a scene it looks pretty much always the same because it's a kind of an assembly line i guess approach which hollywood perfected which is still being used today and he doesn't do that so that's the point i'm trying to make here he doesn't have that type of assembly line approach that every story should be filmed the same way. He takes the material and along with his students, he tries to, he doesn't necessarily guide them, but he shows them all the possibilities. But basically you serve the subject. You serve the either the story or the ideas you want to convey, the feelings, that's what you serve. You don't apply this kind of be all end all kind of assembly line approach to filmmaking. And that's pretty important, I find. Uh, because I think that type of approach is thoroughly lacking today. And, you know, he pretty much had it back then. And this book has a wealth of uh, info. If you're a filmmaker and you want to know how to make movies, I would suggest forget the uh, expensive film school. Read this book. Um, you'll learn a lot. Uh, like I said, it's not a big book. And uh, he just, it's not as theoretical as his other books, like the film form and the film sense. Oh, you might benefit from reading those uh, if you're kind of a formalist, I guess. But this approach here is purely, anyway, practical, but it's not, uh, uh, like I said, a template uh, technique. And just to prove this point one last time, again, you could tell this is the Eisenstein and this is taking place in, uh, in Europe or Russia. Uh, he quotes, Eisenstein does, uh, to make the point that I was making, he quotes Hegel in the book he called uh, Aesthetics, which I'm sure no American film school will ever go 
quoted. Hegel says, uh, referring to the work of Homer and Shakespeare, he says, quote, The only great method is to have no method. The only great method is to have no method. Unquote. That's Hegel. Obviously, Einstein um, agrees with that. And that is uh, mirrored in his approach to uh, not just filmmaking, but film teaching. So again, I would recommend this book highly. Uh, if you're a film fan or a filmmaker, or even if you just uh, um, even if you just want to know how things are get done, the book is called Lessons with Eisenstein, and the author is Vladimir Nizhny. I will put a link to the book in my website. And that's the end of my multiplex episode. I hope you will find my recommendations useful. As mentioned, I will add all the links in the episode description. If you have any comments about the podcast, you can reach the NFP at nfpcan at protonmail.com. That's nfpcan at protonmail.com. Bye for now. <laughs>